Hi, welcome to the Congo Research Group podcast. Uh, my name is Jason Stearns. I'm the director of the Congo Research Group. We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit research institute based at the Center on International Cooperation at New York University. This week, we're talking to Michael Cavanaugh, uh, a Bloomberg News correspondent who spent a lot of time in the Congo and is one of the foremost uh, analysts of the Congolese economy and politics. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks, Jason. So, uh, as usual, Michael, I'd like to take this opportunity to sort of do a roundup of what's going on in the Congolese economy. And I really think this is an issue that a lot of people haven't paid enough attention to. Um, the Congolese economy is heavily commodity dependent. And as with many other countries in Africa or around the world that are heavily uh, linked to world commodity prices, the Congolese economy is taking a big hit because of the slump in commodity prices we've seen now for several years. And this is happening at a moment when the Congo, the Congolese government needs, desperately needs uh, fiscal revenue to fund the electoral cycle to deal with uh, problems affecting its political elite and in particular to deal with the succession battle that President Joseph Kabila currently is in. So, so where do we stand in terms of how, what is the state, I think, broadly speaking of the Congolese economy at the moment? Things look really bad. Um you know, about 20 or 25% of Congo's gross domestic product, so Congo's economy, is is based on extractives. Um, and mainly, uh, that means copper, cobalt, and oil. And the price of copper and oil have dropped by about half, at least, um, since their highs in 2011-2012 for oil a little bit later. So, that's had a huge effect on the budget. You know, you do a, a, your five-year plans, your three-year plans, your one-year plans, and, and you make assumptions based on a certain price of copper or oil. And those prices now are so much lower that uh, basically Congo's can't come close to meeting its budget um, and uh, it's running a deficit and it's had to tap into its reserves so, you know, what we're seeing now, which is probably the scariest thing, is that, is that Congress reserves continue to drop. Um, they're down to about $1.2 billion, which is only enough to cover about five and a half weeks, a little bit more, um, of imports. And that's, you know, down from almost $1.8 billion um, a couple, just a year ago. Right. So they're tapping into these reserves. And, and when you don't have enough reserves, it, it means that you kind of can't cover um, yourself in the case of shocks. It means that you can't manage your um, it means you can't manage your currency. And um, it, what that what that uh, eventually results in is inflation um, in the in the Congolese currency. So let's, I mean, let's, take a, let's take a step back. What I don't understand. Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, what you're saying makes absolute sense. I'm just surprised that it's not taken a worse toll than it apparently has. What you're describing is absolutely accurate, but the government, the IMF is still saying, the government's still saying that they're going to be growing, I believe, at, at least 5 or 6%. So they've, they've downgraded their growth rate, but we're still talking about phenomenal growth rates, even for sub-Saharan Africa, 5 or 6%. There's been some inflation, but it's, you know, I think annualized 2 to 3% inflation. Why don't we see a bigger hit to the economy? Or am I, are we reading this wrong? Are they covering it up? I don't think they're necessarily covering it up. I think that they're trying to be optimistic about um, how things could shake out. Um, you know, there's always po- it's always possible there's going to be a rebound in these prices, and, right. and then suddenly um, 
uh, things could work out a little bit better. It does. It's not clear that that's not going. That's go, that, that that's going to happen. Analysts don't really see, um, say, the increase in demand from China that you'd want, which would help us uh, increase the the price in in copper or in oil for that matter. So you have to. I think you have to think about it. You have to split this inflation question from mm-hmm. the, the the question of the general economy. So like, if, if we just talk about the economy, the economy is in is in pretty bad shape. It is true that it's. That they're still projecting, you know, six and a half percent growth for this year. I actually, they've had to downgrade that several times. I would not be surprised if they continued to downgrade that. Um, the thing you need to remember about Congolese economy is we're starting off from such a low baseline that it's not that hard to grow six percent in comparison to a much richer economy, right? Like even say Angola. Um, uh, or any any of the countries around um, the Congolese economy is is so poor that adding six percent to it isn't in real terms in real dollar terms is not adding that much um, to the economy um, and of course you want to take into account growth population growth when you talk about our gross domestic product per capita right I mean right. the population continues to grow and that actually reduces um, the uh, uh, amount of increase per person it doesn't actually affect people. Um, the way you'd want it to because the population is growing it's three or four percent three or four percent right so um it it doesn't necessarily keep up with population growth growth if you if you if that um increase in gdp is reduced to a certain level to to a low enough level so that's that's the economy right and and what that means is is because they don't have enough revenue coming in they're going to have trouble meeting their bills and it's already clear that the congolese government is not paying its internal debts it's not paying some of its external debts um, it obviously still has to pay uh, the debts it owes to multi multilaterals like the IMF and the World Bank, but anywhere that it can kind of not pay debts, um, it's it's not doing it, and uh, that means that some of the banks in Congo are having trouble trouble because they're having loans that the government's not paying back. Those loans are underperforming, and that's scary for the stability of the banking system. But that's only, that's a solu- I mean, that, that's going to have to be a very very short term solution though to this problem. They, at some point, they're either going to have to default on their loans, which will have serious consequences, or they're going to have to pay some of these debts. Uh, yeah, or they write they write off the debts in some way, or they restructure the debts, or you get uh, the, an organization like the IMF to come in, or the African Development Bank, um, and help them out a little bit, which is something that they did in 2009. The IMF came in and gave um, uh, what was known as an exogenous shock facility, which was a little bit of help to support the, the Congo's Congo's reserves um, to keep the economy to keep to keep the government uh, liquid. Um, and give them money and, and support to um, keep the inflation low and pay off some of its debts. Um, but that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a major issue for companies wanting to do business in Congo, right? Um, right. If you can't be assured of getting paid, why are you going to contract with the government? And that's a, that's a worry. And, and for the banks themselves, you know, I talked to a lot of bankers and a lot of bankers are saying right now that they're very reluctant to give loans to the government, to government uh, agencies and to even companies working in Congo because they're a little bit worried about um, those loans getting paid off in the near term. And part of that worry is, is uh, about stability. It's an election year and they're a little bit worried about what might happen if there's a change in government or if there's instability because there is no change in government. Right. I mean, so one of the examples of this is the Biak Bank, which is, I believe, the third largest bank in the Congo, it has something on the order of 300,000 um, 
uh, people that it serves, uh, either businessmen or private business people or private private individuals. Something like I believe three hundred million dollars in 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 uh, in loans and four hundred million dollars in deposits or something like that that it had. And this bank uh, really teetered on the brink of collapse uh, last month. Uh, and it's it's it is and it's not from what my understanding of it linked to this this phenomenon that you're describing. It is not in the sense that Biak has had problems um, in the past. It's had it's been in a restructuring internal restructuring process now for several years, and it does have internal weaknesses and problems that it's been trying to to deal with. But it is very much linked, if I'm correct, and I'd be eager to hear what you think about this. To the extent that um, it, because it's undergoing this restructuring and it was actually in a, this is a process that's been accompanied by the central bank, the Congolese central bank, there was a tacit agreement with the central bank that the central bank would back it up. And in fact, the central bank, I believe, had even extended a credit line, uh, $40 million, I believe, uh, last year to the bank that had then abruptly cut this year when the Congolese government was going through this internal economic turmoil. And so... Um, of course, that you know triggered huge amount of uh, both criticism as well as jitters in the Congolese economy. There was a, a brief run on the bank, or I think it, it continues to be a run on the bank, and even on other banks during this process. And so, to what extent do you think that Biak has sort of become victim either to to uh, erratic economic programming or just a victim to the commodity slump? I think. Uh, you know, I think all those different things kind of conspired to uh, to bring Biak to this particular moment. Um, I don't know enough about their balance sheet to really speak to the to to Biak and to to its health as a as a bank. But there's no doubt that they have an issue with underperforming loans, which just means they have loans that aren't being paid off. And uh, you know, at, at this moment, it's people don't have a lot of money. They're not making deposits into banks. We've seen pretty flat growth in terms of the banking sector for the last several years. So there was huge growth when the government switched to the bankerization process, right? Where all the state employees were given bank accounts and were paid in, into their bank accounts. That growth in, in terms of bank deposits has has really been reduced, or it's, sorry, I shouldn't say that, it's been flat um, for the past several years. So we're not seeing the growth in the banking sector. And because the economy itself is not growing because of the, or as much because of the commodity slump, we're seeing a, a lot less money, you know, in, in the system. Um, and the, the central bank can only do so much to prop up these banks because it has they, they themselves have limited reserves and because the the system is dollarized and you know the and they have the government has inflation worries the central bank has limited ability to just print more money to solve some of these problems right. so i mean you know these are always their their political decisions as as much as economic ones could the, the central bank save biak it seems like it's it's, it keeps saying it's going to if if it does get to that point. Um, you know, at the same time, the central bank is not, and the government itself is not in a great position yeah. to save this bank, especially with the worry that other banks um, could face similar problems. I don't, I'm not saying that they are going to, it's important to say that, but at the same time, I know in general from speaking to bankers that, that banks are, banks are worried. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, the person who's the custodian of this economy, uh, the Prime Minister Matata Ponyo, is somebody who I, has now, I just saw, I just read this news piece this morning, is, I didn't realize this, is the longest serving Prime Minister the Congo has ever had. Um, 
So if I remember correctly, I believe um, he has now beaten Cyril Adula, who was prime minister in the 1960s. Uh, he was named in April 2012. So he's been there for, for four years. So it's not, we're not talking decades and decades here. It says as much about sort of the Congolese politics as anything else. But still, you know, he has been at the helm of the country and in particular of the economy, because this guy really is uh, somebody who has a difficulty giving a speech without referring to the macroeconomic stability, which is a huge success of the Congo. We've had almost zero inflation now since he's been uh, finance minister, which was his previous um, position. Uh, We've had, you know, continued growth and so on and so forth. As you just mentioned, even in a slump now, we're talking about five or six percent. Perhaps it's going to go lower, but still positive growth rates. Um, do you think that this slump is going to have is is you know, how is this going to affect Matata Ponyo's own reputation? There are obviously rumors that he is one of the people who's in the running as a successor for Kabila. His, the main thing that's going for him that he's running on is the fact that he's been the custodian of a relatively successful macro economy uh, in recent years. Mm. One thing I would say in, in his def- defense is that it's not as if the Congolese economy is very unique in Africa. It's a commodity. It's, a, it's, a, it's an economy dependent on commodities, and that's true for a lot of African countries. I mean, frankly, it's true for a lot of countries around the world. You're, you're seeing in many countries, Russia is a good example, um, countries dependent on, on extractive industries, and their economies are hurting because of, of the low price of gas and oil and, and copper and cobalt and gold and, and all these other commodities um, that are at the root of, of these economies. So, you know, in his defense... Uh, it's a, it's a tough time for any country and it, all his neighbors are going through similar traumas, right? Angola is hurting badly and has reached out to the IMF for help. Um, you know, South Africa is hurting badly. So even more developed countries in, in, in Congo or excuse me, in Africa are having trouble. Um, that said, the amount of problems that Congo is having, their inability to, you know, meet uh, their budgets, the, their need to continually reduce their growth rate um, as inflation is finally ticking up again. I mean, you certainly could say that Congo has not done a very good job at diversifying its economy. Um, they haven't very, done a very good job at opening up the country to the private sector, uh, supporting entrepreneurs, um, increasing access to credit for companies and, and individuals. Um, and, you know, we're not seeing the flourishing of the agricultural sector that Joseph Kabila promised in, in 2011 at his inaugural speech, his second inaugural speech. Um, you know, we're just not seeing these big agro-industrial farms. And uh, that would be, of course, one way for Congo to diversify its economy. Right. Um, and it hasn't done it. Some of the major uh, projects that could have helped blunt the force of the commodities slump um, which m- which mainly means energy, right? So the, very few of those projects have either uh, gotten off the ground. There have been some major issues with some of the energy projects, like the Zongo Dam, for example, um, isn't producing any power in spite of tons of money um, being dumped into that project. Inga is still, you know, who knows what's going to happen with Inga 3. Uh, the Inga 1 and 2 renovations haven't, haven't uh, been um, completed yet, so there's not enough power to uh, either increase production in the mining sector, to in, improve the manufacturing sector. Uh, you know, th- these, are, these are huge problems, uh, systemic fun- fundamental problems with the Congolese economy that have not been addressed. Um, 
and are inevitably going to have an effect on the macroeconomic situation right. because you can't grow that you can't grow out of a commodity slump. So what is it? I mean, what's the government going to do? You think? I mean, we 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 talked about the commodity slump. It's it's gonna it's hit the the balance sheets of the government hard, relatively hard. It's difficult to say exactly how hard. I understand the government's now. There's a lot of pressure, I think, by Parliament for the government to resubmit a new adjusted budget um, for for this year because of um, because of this the the situation. Um, the, from what I understand, I mean, the governments can do several things. It could it could print money, which would lead to inflation. Uh, it could cut its budget, so it cut expenses, which is currently trying to do. But most of the government's expenses, if I'm not mistaken, are, are paying its own employees. Um, so it's difficult to cut expenses without cutting payrolls, which is a politically difficult decision to make. Or, as you just mentioned, it could stop paying its debts, which is a short-term solution because you can't, you know, just never pay your debts. Um, or the fourth solution, so those are three things it can do on its own. The fourth thing is to go for help outside, uh, which means going to the IMF that currently doesn't have a program in the Congo, the African Development Bank, or, or China, or elsewhere. What do you think the government's going to do? What can it do? So one thing I would say is that the government has been proactive. They know this is coming. This has not been a secret. They, they, you know, my, the Prime Minister, Matata Ponyo, understands the issues, right? So as much as he might seem overly optimistic when he gives his speeches, he is quite smart when it comes to these issues and he knows that he needs to reach out. So he's doing just about everything that you said, right? So for instance, they've stopped paying uh, paying back companies, uh, their value added tax, right? So that's a temporary solution to kind of keep enough liquidity uh, in the government so that the government can keep paying its bills while they find another solution. He's going to the IMF. He's, he's reaching out to multilateral donors and asking for money. Of course, that money will come with conditions, and the government is very reluctant to um, adhere to those uh, or accede, accede to those conditions right now. Um, it would mean a lot more transparency of Congress books, including transparency uh, in the um, in the mining sector and the and the state-owned state-owned company sector. And I think that's um, not, sorry to interrupt you there, but I mean, sure. when I was in Kinshasa a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> donors diplomats were telling me that they actually wanted to go further than that and tie political conditions to new loans. <clears throat> Excuse me. So obviously linked to the electoral process, having timely, transparent. Uh, accountable uh, elections, and that's right. something the government's been extremely reluctant to. Are you are you aware of any particular negotiations, or are we still very much at the phase of not no negotiations um, that I know of? Much more, just um, the government is reaching out to right. to um, multilateral donors, but they're also reaching out to to bilateral donors, um, and you know that would mean places like Angola, places like South Africa, places like China. And all those countries are, are having their own troubles, and it's going to be difficult for them to um, uh, to you know give Congo the the support it needs. That's not so true in terms of China. And you know, one thing you can do is you look at you look basically at Congo. It's Congo's Congo's economy is so small, right? Thirty or forty billion dollars, let's say, that you can almost think of it as like a kind of medium sized company, right? So you just look at its right. balance sheets and you sort of see well where are its assets, where are its liabilities, and and, and the assets the com- the country still has, of course, are some of its mining assets, maybe some of its oil assets, right? Right. And if you need money in the short term, what what do you do? Well, you, you will you sell some of those off, right? Right. It's what it's what Congo did after the war, after two thousand one. You saw the privatization of the mining sector and the oil sector, and 
that is happening again right now. So what we're seeing in Katanga is there are a bunch of companies, mainly from China, who have come in and are setting up deals uh, with uh, Jacob Nien and, and some of the other state-owned mining companies. And they're looking into the assets, which you can buy on the cheap right now because their value, of course, plummets when the commodity price drops. And other country, other companies, you know, I mean, we're seeing one of the biggest mining companies in the world, Freeport McMoran, which owns the basically the largest mine in Congo, Tenke Fungarume. Um, they're even thinking of selling their stake in Tenke Fungarume. It's not definite, but it's one of the things that they're looking at because they need to reduce their debts, right? Right. Um, and so it's possible when you look at who are the potential buyers of, you know, one of the best mines, copper mines in the world, and... The, the list is very small. Most most Western mining companies are having major issues right now. And the one place you could look is a, is a country like China. You have companies that still have maybe a lot of cash on hand over the years. Maybe they're backed by the government. And on top of that, they're worried about devaluation of their own currency. So they want to get money out the door as fast as possible before their own currency is devalued. And they might uh, be looking to acquire assets. So, you know, what that means is, is if you buy money, if you buy an asset from Jacobine, that money goes to Jacobine. It doesn't necessarily become part of the, the country's treasury. And then, of course, once it's with Jacobine, this was an issue we've been having for years. Yeah, Jacobine is like a black box. And it's not clear what happens to that money um, right. once it goes to uh, a company like Jacobine. So. So, so what you're saying is, is that the government, you know, you can sell one of the options is sell assets, but it's not clear necessarily where the revenues for those assets would go. Would they actually help the fiscal situation? Would they go into the state budget or would it be much less, would be much, much more opaque and less transparent than that going exactly. to Jacobine and then who knows from... So tell me, so I mean, the Freeport thing, If even if Freeport sold, it would sell and few of those proceeds would go to the Congolese government because it would be free, one private company selling to another private company, probably. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way that it's been working, uh, and Jacobin, of course, has a, has a minority stake in that particular project, Tenke von Grume, so uh, those, any partner usually has the right of first refusal, the preemption right, um, and in order to waive their right, they will usually get some kind of money. This is what we found in the past few years. So there will be some money that will come in. Right. It's possible that the government might require um, Freeport to pay capital gains tax or something like that. Um, that's something that the new mining code, which isn't going to be passed for a while, um, it was something they considered for a while. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you, you could get a little bit of money out of that project. Um, if for, out of a, a sale of a Freeport stake, but no, you're right. I mean, what it benefits Freeport more than it benefits the government. I mean, what benefits the government is that project working, growing, being profitable, and paying taxes. So tell me more about the Chinese, because it's not. This is not so much the case for the Chinese recent purchases, and I believe that you're probably talking about the Zijin in Huayu purchases that have been happening in Katanga. I believe over the last what uh, one to two years. years. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What what are we talking? I mean, one of this is uh, purchasing a stake of an existing company, Ivanhoe, I believe. Uh, what what is going on, and how do you read this? I mean, you said this is this is these are companies buy, taking advantage of the low copper prices to buy up cheap uh, properties. But uh, how do you see? I mean, what, first of all, what's going on, and and what's the impact this this is going to have on on the Congo uh, more broadly? Well, you know, one thing to say about this is that. Yeah, you've got companies like Zijin, like Huayo, like uh, China Non-Ferrous Metals, very, very big Chinese companies. Most, you know, most listeners probably have never heard of them. They have been around Congo for years, um, but they're growing, they're acquiring assets, um, and 
we don't know a lot about what they do. And one of the biggest problems is almost none of these contracts are published. So it's very clear that under, under government decrees, Congo is required all these, uh, this, you know, anytime a, a mine is sold, a state asset is sold. Anytime there's a memorandum of understanding between, um, a state owned company and another company, those, those memorandum of understanding, those uh, contracts should be published. They're not published. Therefore, we don't actually know what's going on um, in, in many of these deals. So, so that's an issue. And, you know, what we found over the years is that a lot of these companies, now I don't, this is, uh, this is not true for all companies that have a relationship to China. I want to be really clear about that. You know, there are companies like MM, MMG, for example, um, which is a Chinese uh, has Chinese shareholders, um, but is much more transparent. They're traded on on stock exchanges. Um, but for certain companies, we have very little information, and a lot of these companies right now that we're talking about, um, we don't we're, we're, we have issues of transparency, and we don't know what's going on in these deals, and um, and that's uh, against the law, frankly. Um, and uh, there, I think there are a lot of Congolese law you're talking about. Yeah, against Congolese law, and there, and there are a lot of questions that um, I think uh, need to be answered about, about those deals and whether these are good deals for the short-term and long-term health of, of, of the so country. We, so, in other words, we don't know uh, how much the concessions are necessarily being sold for, and what right. the structure and who and who's actually profiting from this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We don't and, have that information, and again. I'm not saying that these that, that there are problems with these pro- projects. We don't know that, right? Right. So we just don't know anything about the projects. But they, you know, they should be publishing these these contracts, so so people know, right? Isn't this part of EITI, the extractive in, in the uh, uh, industries transparency initiative? Revenue flows are part of EITI. I'm not the best person to answer that question. Um, revenue flows are definitely part of EITI. Tax payments, things like that, signing bonuses, they should all be part of EITI. Um, and so those are some of the values of, of that you might find in, in these contracts. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of what the contracts say, um, you, those are not those are not necessarily EITI issues. I mean, most importantly, like there's a decree on the books from 2011, um, and multiple letters from the Mines Ministry. So these are government decrees that explicitly say that these contracts and these memoranda of understanding should be published. Okay, so to boil it down into sort of very simple speak that the importance, if I understand you correctly, of the China, these recent Chinese deals is that the Congolese government is cash starved. Uh, it is possible also that private individuals within the Congolese government are cash starved, not just the state budget because of the general shrinking of the economy due to the commodity slump. It is possible that these deals with Chinese companies have provided an influx of revenues both into state coffers as well as into uh, you know, slush funds outside of state coffers. I'm not saying they have, but it's possible. We just don't know anything enough about them to be able to say one way or the other. Yeah, that's that's. I couldn't say it better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before before we end, I wanted to touch briefly on the Panama Papers. This is something that has obviously hit the news big time. Um, your own news agency, Bloomberg, published a piece on it in uh, on on the Congo. I mean, what the uh, quite a bit was written on the on, on the Congo side of things. It really only says, from what I could say, one thing about a Congolese individual. That's the the president's sister, Janet Kabila, and it reveals that Janet Kabila, through a company that was registered by I think Monsek, uh, Mossack Fonseca, this Panamanian law firm, had a stake, uh, if I understand correctly, in, in in the Congolese incorporated Vodacom, 
the the telecommunications carrier. Is that is that is that correct? And and what's the import of that? Sure. So the first thing I want to say is, you know, having having offshore companies is not illegal per se. Um, it's uh, there's lots of reasons why that that might be done, and certainly the president's sister was a private individual for many many years, and and was a businesswoman, and doesn't so it doesn't mean that you know her being involved in business that there's a problem with it necessarily, right? Um, what the Panama Papers do say is it's not that she has a stake in Vodacom; it says that she's a director of a fifty percent director of a or. What the Panama Papers say essentially is that she's a director uh, of um, one of the directors of a company, and that company has an indirect shareholding in Vodacom, um, the biggest phone, mobile phone unit in in Congo. This is not something. This is something we've known for years, right? This is not a secret. If you ask people in the industry in Congo, everyone knows this. Um, it's an old, old stake, um, and you know the issue is more that. Uh, it happens that the stake is held through a company that's incorporated on the island of Nuye, which is in, I had never heard of, frankly, it's in the right. South Pacific. And so, you know, there are, there are two questions to ask. One is that, you know, there's a legitimate question uh, to a public figure, a member of parliament, like, is there a conflict of interest here? And the second question to me is also, like, so why did you need to incorporate this in a tiny unknown island in the, in the South Pacific? Um, I think those are legitimate questions to ask. It doesn't mean that the answers are bad or wrong or correct at all. It just means that uh, I think a public figure probably should answer those questions. Um, the other thing that the Panama Papers revealed, if do you want me to talk more so about? Just, so, just or, just briefly yeah. on the on the Janet Kabila story, the Kiratsu, I believe, was the, the company yeah. that she is a fifty percent uh, owner of. I believe that that was was that contract discontinued in two thousand eleven. I think that the papers said that it, she was no longer, or that at least Monsac Fonseca, or this arrangement no longer existed. No, um, no, they don't. They don't. So they they don't say that. They're just some. Uh, there, there's a. It seems it's, it's very hard. We don't have all the papers, right? We have some papers. We have some papers that the Panama that came through the Mossack Fonseca leak, the Panama Papers. Right. Then we have have other incorporation documents from from Nuye, and those incorporation documents say to me that she's that that company is still a shareholder in um, in yeah. Vodacom Congo, Vodacom Congo, yeah. um, and that there was maybe some issues of inactivity by the company had paid some of the fees that it needed to pay. But it seems that those fees were paid. I mean, again, you know, because there's not a lot of transparency, it's hard to know what the situation is today. But certainly in the last few years, this is this has been true. And I should say that it, uh, to your issue or to your suggestion of transparency and having a public official answer these questions. Uh, in fact, I believe the information minister went on record about uh, two weeks ago saying that anybody in the Congolese newspaper who mentioned Congolese individual cited in the Panama Papers could be sued for libel or would be sued for libel, I believe. Yeah, he said it sort of specifically, and it seemed like what he was saying is that these people don't have accounts in Panama. And in reality, that's true, right? This company is not registered in Panama. It's registered in... Nye. Nye. How do you pronounce it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but again, like lots of Congolese political figures have offshore accounts. I mean, if you go through incorporation documents, you're going to see, I mean, Moise Katumbi is a perfect example, the yeah. former governor of Katanga. He has many, many um, offshore companies. This is not a um, uncommon way of structuring your businesses. Most companies in Congo have offshore, uh, have offshore companies. Hmm. This is, so it's not necessarily, it's not that strange and it's not necessarily corrupt it's just a matter of transparency, right? 
um, why do you have these companies? Why have you structured them in this way? Are you trying to avoid tax? Are you trying to not let people know that you're involved in, in these sorts of things? And is there a conflict of interest if you're a government official? What would a legitimate use of an use? You mentioned that there are plenty of legitimate reasons. What would such a legitimate reason look like? If you're a multinational corporation, um, you know, where are you going to choose to there? You know, people have money moving, moving money around the world, right? Um, if you live in multiple places, if you have multiple homes, if you have multiple businesses, um, you often need to choose a, a tax home, um, choose a, a place to incorporate because in reality, the world, as it gets smaller and smaller and easier and easier to travel and, um, you know, it might make sense for you to choose a, a specific place to call your home. And when, you know, you half your business is in Europe or like, let's say a third of your business is in Europe, a third is in Asia, a, a third, a quarter is in, in North America and a little bit is in Africa. Well, which one should be your home? Let's, well, let's, let's say that it's the Bahamas, right? I mean, let's say it's the Cayman Islands, um, because it's really not clear where else it, it, it should be. I mean, that's a, a use of a tax agency that's sort of, uh, excuse me, a, a tax haven that kind of makes sense. Obviously, they're doing that also to avoid taxes or, um, you know, to... And to avoid transparency as well. I mean, I, 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 I'd hasten to add that one of the reasons probably they incorporate these places is precisely to to obfuscate the names of the people that are invested or involved in these companies. Right. And I think that's the biggest issue, right, with these places is it's not necessarily that they exist, right? I mean, in a lot of many people, you try, you try to avoid your tax, you try, to pay, you, you try to pay as much taxes as you owe, right? And you just sort of find a way to structure yourself so that you pay um, no more than what you owe. Um, the issue more is, is really one of transparency so that you're finding you're founding these companies, but we don't know who the actual owners are, right? And this is the issue. This is the other issue in the Panama Papers that relates to Congo, which is about an oil deal, um, a very well-known oil deal um, in Lake Albert, um, so right on the border with Angola. Excuse me, with Uganda, um, in uh, northeastern Congo, and. There are two oil blocks that are owned by two offshore companies called Capricot and Foxwell. Who, their ultimate beneficial owner is Dan Gertler, um, a billionaire from from Israel, who, as as many people will know, has many many projects. Has been invested in Congo for twenty years at this point, um, and has many many projects are, are around the country. And you know what we found out here, and is that basically there were a lot of. There are a lot of shareholders of, of this, uh, a lot of people associated with this deal along the way. And in fact, Mossack Fonseca, the law firm that is the source of these leaks, it's where these, these leaked documents come from, had a really hard time finding out that Dan Gertler was the beneficial owner of these companies. And in fact, went through a whole series of, of, of emails and, and letters back and forth with Dan Gertler's lawyers in Gibraltar trying to figure out that he was the the ultimate um, shareholder. And, and of they weren't happy when they found out. From what I could read in the press, at least, they, they were, were not happy at all. Right. And in fact, stopped working um, with the firm. So, um, you know, there are other names involved. Obviously, Kulubuse Zuma, who's um, Jacob Zuma's nephew. Michael Hulley, who is Jacob Zuma's lawyer. There is a guy named Mark Wilcox, who's a South African. I'm pretty sure he's a South African um, who um, is involved um, in many businesses with um, uh, a major government official, Tokyo Sexuale. I said that wrong, but I can't pronounce it properly. I apologize. Um, he, um, 
you know, there are some major issues with this case. And the most important thing, in my opinion, that we learned from the Panama Papers is that we now have proof that the United States Department of Justice is investigating this particular oil deal. So they sent um, letters requesting documents about this oil deal to find out where the money came from, who the beneficial owners are, and if there was anything um, nefarious that took place. Again, this is just an investigation. I can't say and don't know if there was anything corrupt at all, but they are investigating it. And I think that that's a, a pretty significant step for the U.S. Department of Justice to do for an oil deal in Congo. Why would they investigate it? What's the jurisdiction? Um, they're investigating a hedge, firm, a hedge fund called OCZIF. And OCZIF is the largest publicly, I think it, I think it still is, the largest publicly traded um, hedge fund in the world. It's based in New York. And they are under investigation by the Department of Justice for violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is one of the kind of major laws that uh, Western governments have created, the U.S. In, in, in this case, has created to stop companies from paying bribes. Uh, around the world. And so they're being investigated for numerous violations of the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And, and a lot of those, and those violations for the most part, I think, um, or at least some of them are, are in Africa. Um, and one of the, one of these, uh, dealings appears to be this, this oil deal in particular. So Oxif is invested in Capricat and Foxwell? Oxif help. It seems that Oxif provided some of the money for um, the Lake Albert blocks, oil blocks, yeah. Which have not yet started to produce, if I'm... No, no, no. I mean, and that's a long way off. The production yeah. stage is a long way off. There's, There's been um, exploration, and I mean, as we all know, there's a lot of oil on the Ugandan side, and it seems like there's a lot on the Congolese side. But, I mean, in terms of production from that from that lake, it's a, a, quite a long way off. You need to buy, build a pipeline, you need to build refineries, you need to figure out who it's, where it's going to ship, and with the price of oil this low, it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to really move forward on that project too much further. Michael, I feel like I need to take a deep breath after every time I talk to you. This is like a lot of a lot of information, but I think uh, it's uh, it's incre- incredibly valuable. It seems to me that the economy is going to be a particularly important factor in this well, in these coming electoral years and in the succession battle that we see going on. And I think that we haven't heard the last of um, Panama Papers, its impact on the Congo and on other actors involved in the DRC. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Michael. Have a good day.